begins. sacred mythological journey so spirit sometimes when people hear the word myth or myth it's a real or make believe not the real significance the great power of mythology historical person we can understand the meaning of buddha type there's a third meaning and it's understanding the the expression of the ultimate realities of existence these elements of that we're exploring in each moment story of one monk who was so enamored of the physical beauty he would sit right in the front simply gazing and adoring after some time the buddha admonished him this body you could look at this who understand and so it it means the truth on all of these levels historical person experience then 
is particularly <laughs> his life not as <laughs> but rather we <laughs> the universe <laughs> and can be tremendous. <laughs> Much more profound. <laughs> we begin to feel a deeper meaning in our own life choices. As we connect the Buddha's journey with our own, of people in any domain, whether it's on the planet or in art or in science or in music. Tremendous courage that's needed. It's the unknown. But as we might get inspired, a willingness to forget the daily hardships and inconveniences. On this journey, the feelings at times of loneliness, of disappointment, it's so that these feelings. And they're all part the difference in our practice as we open up to what is unknown. Extraordinary exploration. This journey of Described very powerful. Great. Described it in a book called Faces. As the archetypal spiritual journey one goes through. 
The first stage on this journey, on this something which he called destiny, or the call to awakening. And this call to awakening, to destiny, happens in our the conventional living by. Conventional understanding that's embodied in our culture. For the cultures, and particularly in our verb, and the verb is
complete for him. to understand the nature and death. What is this process about? What is life? What's so interesting is that these questions, the very same questions come up for most of us. Now, in our lives, we have these moments where we really question what is, is there any meaning? Is there any purpose? But so often the question arises and we see it and we see the depth of it. And then we again of our lives and the questions become submerged. But like the Bodhisattva, 
had this call to destiny, call to awakening. When he came face to face with these and death, each one of us has own call to awakening. To question what the nature of our life is about. It's what has brought us to spiritual practice. It nourishes our commitment about our own call to destiny. What it is that awakens us of journey. Powerful and powerful reflection. It connects us with our own personal individuals. Call to awakening. Great event. The second is something renunciation. In order to to the often hidden possibility, in order to open to what is unknown, to what is still a mystery, it's essential power, the will to renounce what is familiar, renounce what we already know. To be able to give up our of viewing things, of understanding things. We hold on to the familiar ways of understanding. We stay closed to new understandings. It is the renunciation of as being our deepest value. It doesn't mean that we renounce all modes of having, but in a very deep place, the deepest value. That is not the lasting value. We begin to the quality of being than the aspect of having. That the quality of our being brings us more happiness than the activity of this point interesting aspect of the Dhamma is the understanding that Basic morality is a greater power in our lives than 
the virtue of giving, of generosity. Both are wholesome. But powerful lindana. Why is that? You can see it very clearly. The fruit of generosity, the fruit of giving, great abundance, that we live in circumstances. If somebody may generosity be living, and yet if the sila is not developed, the power of restraint, moral activated, and they are living unharmonious lives. No matter how there is no happiness. And somebody who is well established in sila was regardless of how little they may have, actually are living quite happy lives. And so it's interesting even within the spectrum of wholesome activities, what are those things which deeper and deeper sources of well-being? Although it could include, but does not mean that we go out and renounce the world and give everything. Although some people might choose to follow that. The renunciation for us comes out of a silent mindfulness. comes out of exactly the practice that we're doing, where we're not continually reaching out for objects. And we can see it. We can see it in each sitting and in each Are attentive to the workings of our The great renunciation in this sense letting go of grasping, letting go of having objects. Just a few simple examples of how this works in the practice. We might have the sense there's a strong sense something. This gets stronger. We go from that where I have a pain in my knee of changing sensations, changing elements, twisting, pressure, whatever. Say, I have burning. It's not how we would hold it. When we're at that level of begin to see the elements simply as no longer possessing them. We see it in our relationship to thoughts. When we're lost in thoughts, there's the sense of I'm having a thought. And so we get, we get caught in identification. We build this structure of that sense of having. 
is changing our relationship to that. Identifying with thoughts, but just through the we begin to see thoughts coming anybody. There's no sense of having. We renounce in the practice. A very subtle intensity of the mind is what I call the in order to mind. In order for something to happen. Watching the pain in order for it to go away. Watching the breath in order to explode into cosmic bliss or a fantasy, maybe. In order to is simply another thing. And it keeps us from seeing the essential emptiness, the essential phenomena. of the great renunciation of letting go of what we already know holding on bring ourselves to the possibility of whole different in his great this renunciation took place on many when he left home he left his He renounced the worldly life. He renounced the interests. He renounced the world. Renunciation, he undertook different. He undertook the practice of all the levels of concentration and he mastered the eight and nine jhanas. Powerful. Different kinds of through that. But he wasn't satisfied. He saw that no matter what concentrated his mind got, in and of itself, it was not liberation. Why should I, who am subject to decay and death, also seek that which is subject. He saw no matter how powerful, it was still a conditioned phenomenon. And so he gave up those practices. And was common in those times and in those years of these incredible ascetic practices, austerities. There's one image, quite the the name of it, Buddha, and they had one of these images. Temple, um, I used to go to, and it's it's a really powerful image where it's the Bodhisattva, and it's just really totally emaciated years of his endeavor of his seeking are very graphic 
one and then one bowl of rice every week. And it just went down and down and down, pushing the limits. If you want to get an idea of what playing the edge is, this is a description of it. He so tortured his body that he left to practice. And so he realized this is not the path to liberation. And so he took, finally, this six years. He took some nourishment, he took some and he prepared himself for the third great of this sacred journey. The great renewal, the habitual, giving up the familiar. Ready, understand, to open to what's unknown. The third great event in this journey is we can all relate to very well. Personified in the time sitting under the Bodhi tree, strength, with the determination under the tree, with the determination, I am not going to get up. Liberation, awakening. Think of coming into the hall. I mean, just to get a sense of the power of his mind was just extraordinary. And in that night, it said that Mara, the, the embodiment of the attacked the Bodhisattva. And I it's, it's from Campbell's book. The the mythopoetic rendering. Right. See, as you're listening to it, actually image or picture these images. The Bodhisattva placed himself beneath the Bodhi tree and stripped by Kamamara the god of desire. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying hands. He was surrounded by his twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the the protecting deities all took flight, but the future moved beneath the tree, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwinds, rocks, thunder, smoking weapons with keen edges, coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistered. Fourfold darkness, Mara, but the mist into celestial flowers by the power of Gautama. Mara then of desire, 
and pining and lust. But the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to the spot, flung his razor shot and bid the towering host of the army him with mountain crags. Only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips, and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness where he was. She did thousand, a hundred thousand roars. Of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the. The army was immediately dispersed and scattered garlands. But really, what I is that every time we sit, we are also sitting under the Bodhi tree, which are arising concentration to break our resolve, to break our determination. We, in our own by all the armies of Mara, just as the Bodhi tree under the Bodhi tree, the forces of fear, the forces of doubt. Struggles. meaning when we see them in context beyond just experience. Now we have a our struggles to get to get caught up in our of it and often to lose context in which it's all happening. But all of these struggles, this great struggle under the Bodhi tree, part of a much longer of this great journey. And this is really the meaning of heroic effort. Something it has to do with the willingness to open to this, the willingness to experience this. Just as the Bodhisattva was. Awakening. That's which has made us question, made us look deeper. Is the great renunciation, the willingness. There's the great struggle. And it leads us to the fourth event. And that is the great awakening. For the Bodhisattva, it happened that night. And in the three watches, The Bodhisattva opened a 
aspects of the Dhamma. In the first watch of the night, he was able to see a succession of his own past lives. Being born in these circumstances, living out a life, dying, taking rebirth in another situation, in one of the living out his life, tracing back lifetime after lifetime, endlessly. Own innumerable lifetimes to begin to see both the endlessness of it and also the insubstantial. That there was nothing lasting, nothing substantial. Watch of the night, his mind of the law of karma and seeing the destiny of all beings spared from life to life according to their karmic deeds. This understanding arose a great to see on we're all propelled reaches of time. From mind moment to mind moment. We can see it within one second. To another brings certain results. Often we do things within this life and perhaps for countless lifetimes. And yet doing those very things, those very actions. Which and so in seeing this, the Buddha's heart was open to compassion. And in the third watch of the night, the Bodhisattva, the deepest understanding and dependent origination so precisely how it is that it suffering. How this whole cause and effect the possibility of actually breaking that chain realization. And it's daybreak when the morning star that just at that moment opened to liberation. And the first verse that came to him, and one of the one of the very beautiful studying Pali, even in beginning state if one is doing it. There's a lot of poetry in Pali. Translate well as poetry in English, but in there's a tremendous beauty of expression. The Buddha that the first verse was his enlightenment. It's a 
himself. I traveled through the births, seeking by the builder of this house. Sorrowful is birth again. O house builder, you have now been seen. Build no house again. Your wrath, your ridgepole ignorance. Mind has attained to unconditional. Achieved is the end of craving. Build no house again. Page of thirty-five. And some weeks around the Bodhi tree, just gazing at the tree in gratitude for the Bodhi tree. He wandered, this was in Bodhgaya, he wandered <laughs> Sarnath, which is outside the city of Banana, Deer Park, and where the five ascetics with whom he had been practicing, where they were living. And it was in his ascetics that he set the wheel of the Dharma in the which laid the foundation for teaching. He laid out the in detail of suffering and the end of suffering and the path leading to the end. He gave or third discourse that he gave not to lock in the sutta which is the discourse characteristic of selflessness selflessness of egolessness is so paramount to the possibility of freedom as he went around teaching One very nice, what happened in those days is people seemed to get enlightened. They would hear the teachings and become, it was a wonderful time. Sixty disciples, the first sixty disciples who were, he sent them forth to teach. And his instruction to them, as he sent them forth, something which is extremely important for us to understand and this is what he said as he was talking about he said go forth the many for the happiness of the many passion for the world for the good people and devas 
Let not the Teach the Dhamma. Excellent in the middle and excellent in the end. Life altogether perfect and pure. Of others, you who have done your duties. for us to understand that we are not alone. That we ourselves. We need to purify ourselves. But of compassion for the benefit and welfare of others of tremendous energy. That's a it's a source of tremendous inspiration. Of many, for the welfare of many, for the happiness of many. This is why we are practicing. And to be of service to others. We need to remember this, to embody this. tell a few Buddha stories. One of the qualities was that he was able to see with unhindered characteristics of people, into the nature of people. People came to be with him. He could see what method of meditation was, but Sometimes teaching tremendously soft. Sometimes he was quite fierce, you know, and harsh. Just depending. My very favorite stories is that of the dullard. Poor guy who was so dumb that he could not remember four lines of a verse. the order and become an arhant. He said, please teach me. The brother gave him this verse. He remembered the first line and then started on the second. The second would push the And then the third would push the second line. And he struck. And this poor dullard could not do it. And he felt so his heart was in so inspired to practice. And his brother didn't know what else to do. So the dullard's walking very sad, very dejected. He came to know and he saw. He said, he just stroked the dullard's head. And just and this was the Buddha consoling this poor dullard. And he said, the teachings you can do. And he gave the white handkerchief. And he said, stand in the sun and rub the handkerchief. Do you think you can do that? 
the dog. Yeah. And so he just stood in the handkerchief. And after a while, the handkerchief was getting dirty. Just from the skin. And it just deep within his unconscious. A time in his past lives or royal person decked out in all kinds of and who had been out in the hot sun and the finery had gotten to contemplate on this nature, the unsatisfying nature of this body. And as that which had affected him so deeply at that time, it all began in his mind he developed that great dispassion of the body. He became As he became, became enlightened, as the story goes, dullardhood completely disappeared. He enlightened with all the psychic powers and with all kinds of... He went on to, to go play <laughs> with his newfound... Also, the real case. There was one woman who was born and lived in a wealthy family, and her parents wanted her to marry of equal rank in those in those days. One of the servants in the house. They eloped. They ran off. They were just marriage. And and she wanted to go home to give birth. But her husband kept the her parents would do to him. You know, having run off with it, laying. And finally, she just stopped. She stopped. The husband came back. He saw that he went after her. The side of a river. She had gone into labor. And so his wife asked him to please try to get some things for a shelter. He went off. And as he went off, he was bit by a And meanwhile, the wife didn't know all the travail of childbirth. And then after some time, she realized she needed to continue the journey to her parents' house newborn infants she's trying to manage. She comes across who was who had died. She storm. She puts one and carries the other one across, leaves it, goes back to the second. As she said that this huge hawk came and lifted up this, this and killed it. And as she was going back, that child also 
slip into the river. And meanwhile, this, this poor woman just undergoing this tremendous grief and sorrow. She continues her journey to her parents. She asking about her parents, finds out they also were just, there was, there was this killed, and this drives her over the edge. She starts rending her clothes. The loss of, of a husband and two children and parents. And the shock just threw her over the edge. As she came, the Buddha and the order of monks and nuns was almost all over. were trying to chase her away. They thought she was a Somebody gave her this cloak just to wrap around her. And the Buddha started talking to her. Talking to her about the immensity of that exists. He said that the water in the four great oceans than the tears we have shed as we have suffered sorrow in this in this the water in the oceans is less as we've been touched by suffering over so many said, why waste your life in such sorrow and to just become more calm? Buddha went on, he said that there's no being we go from life to life. There's no being that can support us that we all do this alone. Those who are wise times accomplishing this peace which leads to the deathless. I heard this even with all this tremendous suffering, seeds of, of wisdom in her, as she heard the first stage of enlightenment, stream entry, of nuns, and said that, that one day she was just washing her feet on the ground, and it went a little way, and then did then she threw a little more water and disappeared into the ground. She went even a little further and then disappeared. To her, the reflection came to her upon seeing this. As that water
water disappeared at various times. <laughs> going to die. Some people die in middle age. Some people die in old age. And the Buddha came to know of this reflection. Her name was Patachara. The Buddha appeared before her. And he said, Misunderstanding. Live for a single day. The impermanence. The phenomena. Than to live a hundred years. It's better to live a single day. The momentariness of phenomena. Go of attachment, of clinging. Better to live for than a hundred years without it. And the Buddha finished saying that. Arahant. Became a great teacher. And it said she hundreds of disciples, particularly the touched in some very profound way by great suffering because she understood it. As you read through the texts, just the personal stories, just as of people through each of these stages of the call to in them, the seeking, and the renewing, the awakening. This the very last words of the book. And imagine, spent his 45 years teaching and exhorting and everything he can to get to get people to see. As he was these are the last words that he said. You can listen to it as if it is the Buddha to us directly, which he is. Perfect wisdom ignorance are all conditioned things on with heedfulness with the light destroy the darkness of subject to decay are all Drive on with heedfulness. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.